You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Well, we're finishing up Haggai today. We come to the end of a a short but important uh, book. But if this is your first time here, uh, not to worry, each of these sermons uh, stands alone. So even though you're coming in at the end of the story, I, I, I think and I pray that you'll be uh, both instructed and encouraged by uh, this text today. Uh, so as we open Haggai here in the last four verses, it's still the same day where we were at t- two weeks ago. It's December 18th, 520 BC, right? the most precisely dated book in the Old Testament. Uh, earlier in the day, Haggai had addressed the priest. That's what we looked at two weeks ago, uh, encouraging the priests uh, and, and by, by telling them that God would be turning around the fortunes of the nation as they turned to God and began to uh, get their priorities right and begin to faithfully rebuild the, the uh, temple. Um, and now it's later in the same day and, and Haggai has one more word from God and this not to the priest but to the, to the political leader, to, to the governor of Judah uh, and that is a man named Zerubbabel. So, so we're at Haggai chapter two verses 20 to 23. Uh, the text is printed for you in the bulletin if you don't have a Bible. And I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind, if you're able, to please stand one more time for the reading of God's Word. The Word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray as we begin. Father, uh, as we come before you now to hear from you through your word, I pray that you would make uh, our minds receptive to what you are saying to us here. that it may change us so that we as as your people may walk in your ways and bring your gospel revolution to our world. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the tomb of Karl Marx in London, of course, Marx being the intellectual father of communism, socialism, has some quotes inscribed on it from from Marx's books. One of the quotes inscribed on the front of the tomb uh, is this. 
the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. Now, we would not agree with the way Marx would change things, but most of us, I assume, would acknowledge that our world needs change. The issue is how does that change happen and in what direction does that change go? What does it look like? Karl Marx would say that it should be something like churn, right? Redistribute wealth and power from one class to another, right? From an to the oppressed, redistribute wealth and power to an oppressed class, from a privileged class. Uh, workers of all the lands unite. Others would say, earn. Change the world through economic development and redevelopment. Change the world through capitalism. Give people realistic opportunities to, to work and support themselves and their families. Others would say, learn. Change the world through education. And many, even today, say burn. We're seeing it in Portland and other cities in our country. Change, revolution, based on the idea that the society is so corrupt that it needs to be destroyed and then remade. Change by anarchy. The problem with all of these approaches, churn, earn, learn, burn. Did you like that, interns? Nice little preaching tip. Is the problem with each of those approaches is, well, we, we could talk about them for a long time, but essentially, they're not revolutionary enough. Right? They don't go nearly deep enough into the true human condition. They don't deal adequately with human nature, who we are in our thoughts, who we are when nobody else is watching or listening, who we are before God. None of these approaches takes into account the reality of God. All of these approaches are, 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 are human-centered, human-centric. They all come at us from the outside in, right? And the reality is we need a revolution from the inside out. The failings of our human nature will always produce failed human revolutions. So when God looks at the world, he says, turn. Turn to me. Change your direction. Trust in me. Seek me and my will, my kingdom above anything else. Confess your sins. Receive my forgiveness. Know my love. Receive the Holy Spirit. Be reborn as a human being because I, the creator and redeemer, and bringing about the biggest revolution of all. I am bringing everything, everything in the cosmos under the rule of my son, Jesus Christ. 
Bottom line, real radical revolution requires repentance. Repentance toward God. And the only real radical revolution effective to really change the world is the one that God has started. He's not yet finished, but it's happening. You know, when somebody at your office uh, is doing something new and different, we say she's shaking things up. Well, that's exactly what God is doing. God's in the process of shaking things up. He says as much in verse 21, right? I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. And that is a biblical way of saying I'm about to revolutionize everything. So, in these last four verses, this final word of Haggai uh, to Zerubbabel, right? Haggai kind of walks off uh, into history. We don't hear from him again. Uh, these sort of final words to, Zer to Zerubbabel are really words to you and me as well. And, and, and he's talking about this revolution, really, that God has launched on the planet. What do we learn? What, what did Zerubbabel learn? What do you and I learn? Um, two points here. First, God is bringing down all our nations. And second, God is raising up his own king. It's pretty clear, right? We don't have, it's not a long text, but, and those, those, that really is, those are the, really the two big points. God's bringing down the nations. He's raising up his king. So let's unpack these two truths, and I hope you'll see that they have massive implications, not only for the future, for your future, but also for your present, for how you live right now. So first point, God is bringing down all our nations. This comes from verse 22. And, and there in verse 22, God is saying, right, he's gonna overthrow the, the, all, all the kingdoms, all the nations. He's gonna destroy their strength. Specifically, he mentions uh, their military might of course, God talks in terms of chariots and horses because uh, Zerubbabel wouldn't have understood, you know, lasers and tanks. And, but we understand that. God's going God's to destroy and overthrow all the nations and all their strength, which would include their political strength, their economic strength, their technological strength, their, their intellectual strength, their philosophical strength. In other words, God's gonna bring, ultimately bring, human power, human nations, human strength, human technology, human philosophy to nothing. In fact, the seeds of their destruction are already in them. And I, can, I say that because of that last phrase in verse 22, uh, where God says that uh, every, uh, you know, everyone is going to go down by the sword of his brother. Right? That's a picture, interestingly, of self-destruction, isn't it? But that would be consistent with 
with what the Bible often says about God's judgment. I think we often have, think about the judgment of God in kind of a red herring way. We, we imagine this, this stern God up there uh, handing down condemnation to people that, that, that want to serve, that, that, that otherwise want in. But the biblical picture is, is very different. It's, it's actually God giving people over to their desires, giving people over to their own self-destructive ways, right? And that, and that ends up being God's judgment. You see it in Romans 1. C.S. Lewis made the point color, colorfully, right, when he said that, that uh, there are only two kinds of people in the world, the people who say to God, your will be done, and the people to whom God says, your will be done. Zerubbabel, or God through, excuse me, God through Haggai, is, is talking about a judgment on the nations, a bringing down of human, you know, all of this human strength and power and nation by essentially allowing humanity, men and women and nations, to destroy themselves as they put themselves on a vector away from God. Now there's encouragement here and there's warning here. You can imagine this was an encouragement to Zerubbabel. If you think, think about his situation, right? He's, a, he's a, a minor provincial governor in a huge empire, the Babylonian Empire, right? He's, he's only there and he's only the governor by the permission uh, of Babylon. Um, he's governing uh, his home country that has been laid to waste. Its population has been dramatically reduced. He's got no standing army. And his country is surrounded by the superpowers of the day, all of whom are hostile. It would be easy if you were Zerubbabel, right, to be discouraged, to feel hopeless, to think, oh man, I'm in a, I am in a no-win, dead-end situation here. But it's precisely into that situation that God speaks to Zerubbabel and says effectively, look, don't look at the present. Don't, don't look, you know, just on the horizontal plane at what you see around you. Look at me. It's not about the present, it's about the future. It's about what I'm gonna do in the future. Don't trust in your present, trust, trust in my promises. What looks overwhelming to you now, Zerubbabel, what looks impossible to you now, is all gonna come crashing down. Now, if that was an encouragement to Zerubbabel, think about how you know, our brothers and sisters in, in, in countries and under governments where, where they're suffering, right? They're suffering under tyrannical despots. They're suffering in grinding poverty. Corrupt governments take away aid that should go to them and, 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 and the government people live in luxury. I mean, it, and, and they're being persecuted and killed for their faith. Man, this kind of message is a lifeline. God is promising that those, those nations that have us in their iron grip from which we see no way out are one day gonna be gone. That's an encouragement. But 
There's also a warning here. And, and I suppose it's particularly a warning for us because we're not in that situation, are we? I mean, we're in one of the superpowers. And not only that, but we're, we're, we're in a superpower that's a representative democracy. The, the, the temptation for us is to sort of conflate our superpower with God's kingdom. To think that God's kingdom interests must line up with our national interests. But God really put that kind of thinking to rest here with Zerubbabel, didn't he? I mean, there are no exceptions here. All, all of the nations are gonna come down. God is gonna shake the earth and all human power, human structures, human nations are gonna come to nothing. Now understand me, I, I understand, you understand that we are blessed to live where we do and to be able to participate in the government as we do. And this message should not cause us to be apathetic or uninvolved or uninterested. It is to be involved and to, and, and to be uh, but it, with perspective, right? To understand that this blessing that we enjoy now is not an ultimate reality. And it is not the same thing as God's kingdom. That's coming as God's cosmic revolution continues to unfold. And at the end of the day, every kingdom, every nation is gonna be overthrown except one. There will be one sovereign superpower in the end and his name is Jesus and every knee will bow before him. That puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Which brings us to our second point, which is God is raising up his own king. That's verse 23. Now, did, you might have noticed that, that God is talking about all this stuff happening in the future on a day, on that day, God says. And you might be wondering, well, what, what does he mean? What, is the, what, is, what day is he talking about? Well, that's almost a technical term. It, it is virtually a technical term uh, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. When, when the Jews talked about the day or that day, they were talking about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is that day in the future. It was future for Zerubbabel. It's still future for us. The, the day when, 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 when you know... Uh, the clouds are rolled back as a scroll, like we just sung. And God's kingdom is finally and completely and forever established. Jesus is put on the throne. His reign is uncontested. And we face judgment. That's, what, that's when this is all happening, okay? And God says on that day, he's gonna take Zerubbabel and make him like a signet ring. There's another meaningful metaphor for us. What, what in the world does that mean? Well, a signet was the, was the king's seal, right? And, 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 and the king would press that seal 
into wax or into pottery and it would be sort of like a notary stamp, right? It would be, it would be the guarantee that this order or this edict, this letter is, is the word of the king, right? Um, it's in a way, it's like our identity package today, right? Credit card, driver's license, and social security card. You protect those, right? You, you protect those carefully because if someone gets a hold of them, they can do a lot in your name. Well, the sa- it's the same with a signet, right? So a king, you know, if you had the king's signet, you could do a lot in the king's name. So the king would protect his signet, literally with his life. How? Well, he would put it on a ring. And so he would wear it on his hand so it, you, know, you couldn't get to it and, it and it would be there. Or he would wear it on a, on a chain around his neck. And so when God says that he's on that day, he's going to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring, he's communicating two things. One, this king is going to be very close to me. This king is going to be, you know, just, just like a signet, a king holds his signet ring close, either on his hand or around his neck. So this king is going to be close to me. He's going to be identified with me. That's the first thing it's communicating. The second thing it's communicating is this king, Zerubbabel, on that day is going to have all the authority of God. Right? If, if God hands you his signet ring, now you have all the authority of God. You, you, you are speaking and acting in his name. You wonder what Zerubbabel must have thought. It, you know, this is pretty heady stuff for a, you know, a minor provincial official. What's going on here? Well, Two things. Let me let, let's sort of unpack this because I think this, in one sense, this is about Zerubbabel, and in another sense, it's not about Zerubbabel at all. It's about Zerubbabel's descendants. Okay. First, what, what's how's this about Zerubbabel? Well, you need to know that Zerubbabel was probably the least likely candidate to be governor and to receive this unbelievable promise that he's gonna be this signet ring king. And the, and the reason I say that is that, is that Zerubbabel has, out, has in fact already been rejected by God. If you go to Jeremiah 22, and we won't turn there, but in, in Jeremiah 22, God, you, what, what you discover is God judging Zerubbabel's great grand, I think it's his great grandfather, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was a king of Judah. He was a descendant of David. But he was a bad guy and a bad king. And, and, and the Lord rejected him, cast him off as, as king of Judah. But what's interesting is the way God did it. I mean, God, God said, look, I'm, Jehoiakim is so bad that even if he were a signet ring on my right hand, I would take it off and throw it to my enemies. Interesting, okay? So, and, but then he goes on to say, and none of Jehoiakim's offspring shall succeed 
in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Well, that's Zerubbabel. And yet, so if, you, if you've, you've been reading through your Bible, you read Jeremiah, and then you come to Haggai, and, and what's happening? Well, the, the whole signet ring imagery is being reversed. What had been taken away from Zerubbabel, God now gives back. And what you learn is that Zerubbabel is standing there and he's in his position and he has this great promise by God's grace alone. He's done nothing to merit it. Uh, he's just received God's mercy. And here's the principle I want you to take away. And that is that you can't, you may be, listen, you may be part of a family who's, you know, your family dynamics are so screwed up and they've now impacted you and you're screwed up and you think that there, because of that, there is absolutely no way you could ever come into the good graces of God. And I want you to hear that that's not true. That God's mercy and God's compassion and God's grace always trumps his judgment. With God, judgment is not his last word. Jehoiakim, you know, Zerubbabel's ancestor was cast off because he cast God off. Zerubbabel turned to God. In just a, a very small, he just turned to God and started to do what God told him to do. And he had just made a, a, a small beginning in, in, in laying the foundation of the temple and God says, you're my man. I've chosen you. I'm, I'm taking back that signet ring and you're gonna get it. It's, it's a remarkable picture of God's overwhelming grace that even overwhelms his judgment. So don't ever think, people, that you're out of the reach of God's grace, that you've somehow sidelined yourselves forever. I'm sure Zerubbabel thought he had, and yet this promise comes. It's unbelievable. So that's what we learn about Zerubbabel. But another way, this is not about Zerubbabel at all. It's, it's, and, and this is really more important. It's about his descendants. The, 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 the Hebrew people had a way of sometimes referring, and there are examples in the Bible of it, where you refer to a person's descendants, but you just call but, but you're referring to the descendants by the name of the ancestor. And, and that's what's happening here. Um, the promise is made to Zerubbabel, but in fact, it's gonna be fulfilled in one of Zerubbabel's descendants. I think the idea was, you, you know, the, the, the Hebrews had a concept of, you know, a, a man having his ancestors or his, his, his future descendants in his loins already. So if, if Zerubbabel receives the, a promise, the, 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 the ones that are gonna come from his loins down the line uh, are, are also recipients of the promise. And that, that's really what we've got here. And we know that because Zerubbabel didn't become this. He didn't, this, this promise was not fulfilled in Zerubbabel. You may not have ever heard of Zerubbabel until today, right? He certainly didn't become, you know, with a name like that, which, by the way, means seed of Babylon. Um, 
he, didn't, he never became this promised messianic king. From our point of view, he walks off the pages of history right here. But what's interesting is that he doesn't walk off the pages of the Bible. Because if you go to the New Testament, you go to the first book in the New Testament, you go to the first chapter in the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, Matthew opens his book telling us where Jesus came from, right? He gives us the line of Jesus, his genealogy. And listen to what Matthew writes. This is Matthew 1, verses 12 through 16. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Yaakov, Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. So you see, the promise was made to Zerubbabel, and it was made in, in his name, but it was fulfilled in Zerubbabel's descendant, Jesus. Jesus became the signet ring king. And Jesus will be installed as the signet ring king on that last day. The one God chose, the one who has all the authority of God because he is God. And what I love about Matthew is you, you know Matthew is seeing the connections with, with Haggai, right? We've, he's got the Zerubbabel connection in, in the genealogy right at the beginning. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, what you see is God shaking the heavens and the earth. Three prophetic shakings that happened in history supernaturally that, that tell us an underscore for us that Jesus is this promised king. Remember where they went, were? At the crucifixion, right? Crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, in the, in at the moment that Jesus died, there was, a, there was this massive earthquake. So, so big that, you know, tomb, tombs were torn open. The temple uh, was, was damaged and the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom, uh, opening up forever a new way to God, right? Symbolically showing us that the new way to God is through the torn body of Jesus, the king who was torn by God's judgment so you wouldn't have to be and would never be. And then just a few days later at the tomb of Jesus, on the third day, there's another earthquake that rolls back the stone to reveal that Jesus' sacrifice of his life, God's chosen king, that his sacrifice for you was accepted and vindicated because as that stone rolled away, we see that the Holy Spirit in power 
raised Jesus bodily from the dead. And then finally, in Acts chapter four, early on, in the very early days of, of the church, the Holy Spirit had come at Pentecost. Peter and John had gone out to preach. They were arrested and held in custody. There, uh, and uh, find, ultimately released. They were held because they were preaching about Jesus. Uh, and they come back to the disciples and, they, and they're praying together. And when they finish praying, Matt, uh, Luke records that the place where they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. All these shakings going on at the end of Matthew's gospel, connecting us to this descendant of Zerubbabel who's gonna shake the heavens and the earth, right? Friends, the shaking isn't done. Those shakings were prophetic. There is more shaking to come. God said, I am, on that day I'm gonna shake the heavens and the earth and that's a shaking in judgment. But the good news, friends, is that if Jesus is your king today, if you're, if you're trusting in his life, death, and resurrection for you, if you are hiding under his wings, to avoid the judgment of God, then you right now are a citizen in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12. You know, we all have dual citizenship. Right? We're citizens of the United States, and we take that importantly. We're citizens, as, as a citizen of the United States, we're citizens of California, and we take that seriously and importantly. But your most important citizenship, Christian, is in the kingdom of God. Because every other, every other entity is gonna be shaking in judgment, shaken in judgment, but God's kingdom will not be shaken. Jesus already took the shaking for us, right? When he spilled his blood. Okay, now all that's, isn't that cool? Let me, let me give you three quick closing applications, very quick. Zerubbabel should teach you not to be deceived by appearances. You know, Zechariah, who was ministering alongside Haggai about at the same time, still looking out, right? He, Zechariah said it in a different way. He said, don't despise the day of small things. We're in a day of small things. God's kingdom also comes small, right? It comes in almost unnoticed. Jesus made that point over and over again. God's kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's so small you can hardly see it. It grows invisibly and slowly, but it eventually becomes something big, right? That, listen, in God's economy, friends, small is large. So the, the, the takeaway here is don't be sucked in, in by this American myth that bigger is better than smaller, that faster is better than slower, that more power is better than more weakness, that, that celebrity is better than anonymity. It's not. Think about Zerubbabel, no name minor official. Think about Jesus. 
born into poverty, born in a stable, raised a carpenter's son. No marks of success, no marks of significance, no marks of glory. And yet Jesus was and is the tip of the spear in the greatest redemptive revolution in all of history. Remember, God uses small things to bring about his cosmic purposes. It had to be a mind warp for Zerubbabel, right? He's looking out at this, at a wasted nation. The walls are down. The temple's barely begun. And God comes to him and says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. Right? And, and, and I'm sure Zerubbabel looked around and going, what? Right? Listen, you're not too small and you're not too insignificant for God to do his big things through you. No person is too small. No person is too insignificant. Read Francis Schaeffer's collection of sermons titled, No Little People. That's the first application. Second, I, I hope you see how this gives meaning to your work, Christians to your countless small acts of obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. Be encouraged by this. You know, Zerubbabel was faithful over a little, a very little. Rebuilding a, a crushed temple, and, and even that was not gonna be impressive. But I have no doubt that when Zerubbabel died and went before the Lord, he heard from, from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. You, have, you, have been you were faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Matthew 25. So Christian friends, the work you're doing at the office, the parenting you're doing at home, the marriage that you are holding together, the studying you're doing at school, the worship you're doing right here, the gifts you're making to benefit God's kingdom, the hospitality you offer a neighbor, the prayer you put up for a friend or an enemy, all of that, small, unseen, but magnificently significant because you belong to God and you are part of his ongoing gospel revolution. Finally, this gives urgency to your outreach and to my outreach, doesn't it? We're reminded here that the nations and all their strength are one day gonna be shaken in judgment. They're all gonna come to nothing. But you and I, by God's grace and by Jesus' performance alone, we find ourselves right now in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Friends, that's not a reality we can sit on. The stakes are too high. Some of your friends and some of your family members are going after security and significance and identity in things that will not deliver and things that will be shaken. They're racing down a dead end road. And they probably don't even know it. 
So think about the people you can pray for. Think about the people you can talk to. Think about the people you could invite to new life and say, just come and see and hear what, what God's kingdom, in a little corner of God's kingdom looks like and acts like. Let's be faithful together in our, in our spheres to reach out with the message of the good news of Jesus, amen? We're gonna close in prayer, and I'm, I'll close in prayer, but in two minutes, and I'd just like you to take some time to pray and reflect on, on God's word to Zerubbabel, which is God's word to you. And as you do that, think about those the things I just mentioned, right? Think about people that you know, that maybe walked with the Lord once and aren't walking with him anymore. Maybe they've never walked with Jesus. Think, think about who you, those people that you can be praying for. Think about those people that you know better and maybe can get an, pray for an opportunity to talk to them about the gospel. Pray for people that you could, for the Lord to put on your heart, people to invite so they can see and hear the gospel, okay? So let's do that now, and in a, in a couple of minutes, I'll, I'll close this in prayer. Thanks. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your sovereign majesty. You know, it's, it's hard for us to connect to that behind the, 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 the smallness of everything we see around us. But I thank you, Lord, that the, the smallness of our own lives, of our own faith sometimes, of our situations does not stop you from doing your sovereign work of bringing all things reconciled together under Jesus Christ. Thank you for that ultimate hope. Give us wisdom as we move forward, Father, to be, to be faithful followers of you faithful citizens of our earthly kingdom and faithful citizens of your kingdom that thankfully, Lord, cannot be shaken. Keep us walking in the right perspective. Keep our eyes fixed on you. Be a light in our darkness, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton. Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.